Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another great guest on today, Chris Kirsch, the co-founder and chief executive officer at Run Zero and a longtime team member at multiple security companies, many of which you would recognize. I mean, if you didn't know him from one of those, he's also a uh, husband. He is a chef. He's, uh, he's specifically a bread baker. I love getting people sort of personal interests and hobbies out there. A runner, a social engineer, uh, but a longtime contributor to cybersecurity and a nexus to the OT community with his uh, his his latest company, Run Zero, which we'll talk about as we sort of go through his story. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. I've so, got, a, uh, I've got a bread proofing downstairs right now. So what, I'm not what, lying what about type, the bread what, baking. What type of bread is it? It's a uh, the the no need bread from the New York Times. Super easy. Like if if you want to get started with bread baking, this is a super simple one. It takes all of five minutes to put it together, and then you wait basically half a day or a day, and then it's 45 minutes in the oven. You've got a really nice French uh, country boule kind of bread, and it's better than anything you can buy in the store. Well, truth be told, I need to get that recipe from you because I'd like to try it. I'm, I'm doing more cooking in my own life than I ever did before, but it's mostly started through smoking meats, and mm -hmm. uh, that's gotten the ball rolling, and so my wife's excited that I'm, I'm sort of tiptoeing my, my way into that, but I, it sounds like something easy to make like that'd be great to go it's with like a brisket easy. or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. super yeah. easy to make. Very cool. Well, uh, Chris, I always start, you know, I've got some shtick that I always say, and you know, the superhero analogy for cybersecurity people, uh, every superhero, you know, has a, a backstory. So where are you from? Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Germany, uh, close to Frankfurt. Uh, my, my parents are both from there. And yeah, went to primary school there. Then uh, my, my parents sent me to boarding school because the schools in my local town weren't that great. Um, so I, I went to Switzerland first and then to the UK, then, yeah, and then uh, stuck around in the UK for a little bit for studies. And you live now in the Northeast, right? In Boston area? In the Boston area. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's sort of peel back the, the, the layers of, you know, I, I, I'm always curious. Sometimes it's, no, not at all. It was later. Other times, like when I was two, I was programming. When did technology uh, cross your, your path? So I begged my parents to get me a computer, I think when I was around 10 or so. And I think for my 12th birthday is when they got me one. What did you and get? That was, uh, that was a Schneider CPC 6128. I think in the US it was known as Amstrad. So it was like an OEM from, from Amstrad. And um, yeah, already had a color screen. My friends only had the green screen. Um, yeah, that was pretty much it. So I started programming basic on that one. That was, I think my first foray into programming. Yeah, well, that's so. We, yeah, I, I bet it's similar era, similar sort of things. Um, although, I, if you had the color screen and I was not, um, it's, it's sim similar uh, enviable position. I had a 300 baud modem, and I had a friend who had a 1200 baud modem. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was you that know, was NB Central yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, I think modems were not quite as popular in Germany because local calls were charged calls. 
Yeah. Right here in the US, local calls were free. So dialing to uh, like a, uh, what did you call it? Like a, Baltimore. not the ISP, but the, the thing before, where you just dial to another number. Uh, there's, a, there's a term there that I've, that I've only heard in the US uh, yeah. where uh, people have like these uh, chat rooms or something like that, that are run by an individual. So you dial to somebody else in your own uh, in your own town and you connect there. Anyway. I mean, the thing that we were plugging into a lot back then were BBSs, bulletin boards. BBSs, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Those maybe. didn't exist as much in Germany. And I yeah. think it's because, you, you, you know, the lease line was unaffordable and right. local calls cost you like 10 cents a minute or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I could have, we could have a whole side conversation about that here <laughs> and all the things that went on. But uh, okay, so uh, yeah, so 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 early interest in in technology. What mm -hmm. what did that what effect did that have on your life? What did you do? I mean, what did you decide to do after after graduating? Uh, you know, from high school. So I was always interested in computing, and uh, actually, when I graduated from high school, I went and studied politics with international studies. Nothing to do with computing. So I have no business being in this industry, right? But I, I thought it was actually really interesting, and. Um, it it's helps me understand some of the geopolitical aspects of cybersecurity that are really interesting. Um, so I I look at a lot of you know the things that are happening with with Russia, with China, with Iran, and so on through that, that political lens and international relations lens. Sure, really interesting. And um, my hobby on the side was graphic design. So I did the school newspaper, you know, back in Switzerland, then in the UK, and then the production for the student newspaper at the university. And so that landed me my First job out of college was uh, actually in an advertising agency. And what's his name? Don Draper, you know, like his real Don Draper kind of job. I was uh, doing graphic design for uh, menopausal pills and hemorrhoid creams and the directions for that, typesetting the directions for that. It was fantastic. It was glorious, yeah. right? And in the evening, I was working with a, a, uh, a small startup. Um, uh, they were a technology company and were making software and so on. Then after a while, I, I switched to that. But my yeah, that was my studies, my my first job basically. Yeah. So does the uh, does the marketing language that you use for the uh, the, the hemorrhoid treatments? Do you ever use that to, like to solve security problems? Is there similar language? <laughs> well, you've in in sales everywhere, you have to find the pain point, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think with hemorrhoid creams, I think that's a little bit easier than with uh, some of the the cybersecurity products. But yeah, yeah, it's more cute, and people know where the pain exactly is. Yeah. Um, so you landed, if I'm not mistaken, one of the first thing, maybe the first, where you you firmly were in cybersecurity after that technology was PGP. Yes. So the company I worked for, the little startup that I started with, eventually got acquired by PGP. We went through a few okay. iterations, right? We started yeah. out with, with antivirus software that went absolutely nowhere. Uh, then we uh, uh, we actually took the international version of, of uh, PGP, which was a, a clone of the uh, American one, and we built an integration for Microsoft Exchange client, which is now Outlook, you know, as a precursor to Outlook. And that was because this was the, the time of the crypto wars. So uh, I'm not, when I'm talking about crypto, I'm not talking about Bitcoin. I'm talking about real encryption, right? And so at the time, the U.S. had laws against exporting strong crypto. So when you had uh, Mozilla, for example, and wanted to download that in Germany, you got a weaker like 40-bit encryption versus the 128-bit encryption that was uh, in the U.S. For Outlook encryption, for anything that you could get, like you would get a weak version of the same thing. And 
PGP was the first product that made strong encryption available to the common citizen, especially outside the US, and they had a, an international version. So we were licensing that for them, then we competed with them, then they, you know, like, because then the laws fell, the whole story about that. And so ultimately they acquired us because they, they couldn't beat us and we were taking more, more market share from them in, in Europe than, than they wanted. And so that was one reason why I ended up in the US. Well, yeah, I, I remember, you know, that PGP, I don't, I don't remember started, but I think about the time you went there, I was actually in the military and starting LogiCape and attempting to use or figure out to send people communications and encrypt it, you know, uh, using something with an email client. And, and, and it was it was cumbersome and not a lot of people participating and how it all worked. And uh, it was challenging in 1997, but it was fascinating to me. And I think what was that out of um, the U.S. was out of, out of Silicon Valley, Palo Alto or somewhere, I think. They were in Palo Alto, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's just interesting that you were part of that and part of the European spawn uh, spawn of that whole thing. So, yeah, that's uh, and you were there. You had quite a long tenure from the previous company that got acquired to being there. You, yeah, I, I think including like the whole time at PGP, including the previous company was about nine years or so, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, anything from that era that you you think today there's like a lesson learned there or an experience there that just burned into you and it's, it's part of, you know, maybe how you make decisions today or things, how you look at opportunities, um, yeah. new technologies and how they're adopted or not. Yeah. So. Two things. So one from an entrepreneurial and one from a technology perspective. PGP was really hard to use. Like, I mean, we made, of course, we made it much easier than, you know, the command line version and so on. And we had, uh, we had a high, like our specialty was we had a hybrid client that could speak PGP and SMIME and the standard called PEM, privacy enhanced message that nobody uses anymore today, right? And uh, so we could send one message to recipients of all three and we could split it up and all that stuff to make it easier. But if I now think today, like Signal, right, is a really good encryption. It's, it's incredibly easy. It still uses a lot of the same principles, but they've just ramped up the, the usability level so yeah. much further. And so now encryption is actually usable in the mainstream. I think back then, it was really either you had to be trained by your company and they had to set it up and the whole PKI thing. I've written more white papers and given talks about PKI and Alice and Bob than I care to remember, right? That was really complicated stuff. Now you can download Signal and pretty much like my parents can use it and it's easy, right? And that's awesome. From an entrepreneurial perspective, two things. One of the things is the technology we once built an entire company on is now a button in Outlook. So, right? Yeah. <laughs> so lesson learned is you always need to innovate uh, if you want to you know ha continue having a business because things just get commoditized but that's the whole yeah, spectrum from from a product category before the chasm for sure no cause chasm crossed to feature yeah over yeah. over a fair amount of years but still that's yeah. you saw the whole arc intimately that is something yeah yeah and i mean that's like what 28 years ago now yeah so it's, it takes time, right? Um, you know, this has been a feature in Outlook for a little longer. Yeah. So it's not quite 28 years, but it does eventually end up as a commodity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and then there was another interesting thing of lessons learned. Uh, there was one time where we had built our entire product on a, a license from PGP because they couldn't export it to us, but they could. we could sign a contract that they would not sue us for copyright infringement and trademark infringement, right? So it's a little bit of a weird contract, but still, right? right? We, we wanted to have it for legal uh, certainty. And so they were coming over to Europe 
with their business, they were able to export it after a while. And so they were competing with us and they didn't renew the contract. And we had, you know, our business was based on that. We basically had a UX around that crypto that they had built. And so, you know, open PGP was becoming a thing. So we thought, okay, we can develop something like a clone and, you know, market that. And we no longer have to pay licensing fees. But then we thought about how do we, how do we bridge the gap? And so we figured out that the licensing contract that we had with them didn't demand that we pay them a certain dollar amount per license or per seat, but a certain percentage. So we just went to all of our major customers, like in pipeline, you know, not even close customers, prospects. And we said, we're going to sell you this for a buck a seat for the next year, right? And we completely blocked the market. And that gave us time to develop our own implementation of, of OpenPGP. Yeah and bridge the gap, right? So when you're in a situation where as an entrepreneur, you're, you're thinking like, oh, there's no moves left. You're like, this is destroying my business. Oh, like there's usually a move left. So if you just like dial down your stress levels and you really think it through and you, you, you look at all the options, there's usually more than one option and just try and figure out what that is. Yeah, great, great advice, great example. Something, something entirely different. Then a, a frontal, uh, you know, frontal approach is like, what if we did this? And it, bought, yeah. like I said, bought, bought you time uh, for other strategies to come into play. That's that's cool. Well, what was next? What what uh, after you decided to, to leave PGP, where where'd you go? So I went to a company called Encipher. Though they make hardware security modules, so it's kind of taking encryption keys and locking them basically in a in a physical box that's tamper resistant. Uh, think of you know, like James Bond kind of missile silo kind of thing. You need to have two people or three people coming together with smart cards to actually use the key. And that's really important for, for things like, you know, keys that sign passports, keys that sign uh, other keys as part of a certificate authority, you know, high value keys that really are the, the root of a trust system. And you, you don't want to have those lying around in software uh, just as a file on a disk where it's easy to copy them and you can't control it. And uh, sometimes you have systems where you need to be able to sign things or like code signing, you know, like you need to be able to sign things as part of a process, but you shouldn't be able to copy them. Because if you copy them, then, you know, you could sign a, a piece of software as Microsoft or as Adobe or as Apple and so on. So yeah, that was my only time that I actually worked in hardware, which was interesting. I quite honestly, I don't ever want to do it again because I, I learned what a drop test is, you know? <laughs> basically dropping the, the box uh, in the packaging from exactly one meter height. I'm sorry for Americans, but this was a, this an international standard, right? It's not, not inches. And, uh, and you drop that 10 times and then see if the box is still alive when you unpack it. So those were some of the, the issues that we were facing at the time and so on. So I, I never want to do software again. And also the release cycles. It's just so slow moving. First of all, you're working in hardware. And second of all, you're working with hardware that's highly certified to like FIPS and common criteria and all of that stuff. So every release you have to put through the whole ringer of getting the, yeah. the certification upgrade. And it's just such a slow business. And it's very hard to expand because nobody wants to use these boxes if they don't have to. So it's just a really, really slow business. I learned a ton and it was really interesting. But uh, yeah, I don't think I'll be going back to hardware. Well, uh, you know, it's a chapter in your in your in your book. You're like, yeah. okay, I close it and uh, move back to move back to to software. And if I'm not mistaken, that that brings another well-known storied company, Rapid Set. Yes. So I was ready to leave Encipher, and you know, I had up until that point never really interviewed for a job. 
because the first company, like it was, you know, my, my friend was working there and he introduced me to the manager and so on. And then at Encypher, uh, my manager from PGP had left and she asked me if I wanted to join there and so on. But then I was ready to leave and I thought, hey, I, I should, like, I've interviewed a lot of people, but I've never been interviewed for a job. So I thought I need to do some practice interviews. And my first practice interview was with, with Rapid7. And you must have gone was, well to go to practice, but it's also where you ended up. So <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, it was very early days of Rapid7. I think they had maybe about 70 people or so. I, I, I walked into the office and had pizza, like empty pizza boxes stacked up, you know, in the corner and all that stuff. And then I interviewed with uh, one of the sales leaders. And it was a bit of an odd interview because he was uh, wearing a three piece suit, sunglasses, and no shoes, no socks. I'm like, <laughs> I like your style. <laughs> this is different. <laughs> and there was a, a reason, I think, for that. But it, it, like, that was interesting. And what I liked is that you know they seemed to be successful and they were doing things very differently uh, and so on. And also, um, I was interviewing for a role as a product marketing manager for Metasploit. So I had an interview with HD Moore, who's the creator of Metasploit. They had he had just been acquired. Him and his project had just been acquired by Rapid7, and it was an open source project. Of course, uh, they wanted to keep the Metasploit framework open source. And my job was not only to take care of that community, but also then to figure out together with HD how we build a commercial product on top and how we market that and so on. And Rapid7 was a, a one product company at the time. So all the, the sales pitch and the sales motion and how we invoice and like all of that stuff was all geared towards one product. So when you're adding a second product, not only are you a second product, but you're changing all the processes, right? The hearts and minds of the salespeople that they actually bring you into the conversation, that they learn the pitch, that they're talking about something that they're not quite as comfortable with as their standard pitch, right? And it's even harder when your product is cheaper than the other product, because that means they make less commission on selling you. So it's kind of like an add-on and so on. So that was a really interesting, interesting transition. And then also going from the, the crypto geeks, all math guys, to the hackers, which was way cooler. I mean, both sides have their merits, right? And there is a ton of really interesting stuff in, in code breaking and cryptography and all of that stuff. But the hackers are a little more fun to hang out with over a beer. I'll buy that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I realized we skipped over something. You jumped the pond from uh, Europe to the United States somewhere in there. BGP, yes, I did. During yes. the BGP years. Talk about that. I think that's also moving around this global yeah. cybersecurity yeah. economy, right? There's, there's cybersecurity business all around the world mm -hmm. and yeah, there's regional differences, but you moved over and have stayed. You, if I'm not mistaken, you've been here ever since. Talk a yeah. little bit about that because I think there's people wondering about moving to or from you know yeah. different countries yeah. within this industry. Yeah. So if you paid attention, I moved around as a kid quite a bit. And my parents always stayed in the same place. I just went to boarding school in Switzerland, UK, studied in the UK, went back to Germany, et cetera. And uh, so I was comfortable moving countries and I, and I find that actually super interesting and exciting. And at that point I'd been in Germany for 10 years and I was getting a little bit antsy. And my now husband got a job offer from a university in Boston as a postdoc researcher. And he wanted, at the time, he wanted to stay in academia. And uh, if he wanted to become a professor in Germany, he needed a year abroad. And I'm like, this seems like a sweet gig and you need it for your resume. So like, you should do that. And I'll figure out how to get to the US 
And if I can't, then just please come back after a year. And, uh, and I made sure to, to marry him before we left, you know, before he left. And uh, he got on the plane to Boston without ever having been to Boston. Like he made the decision to move there without ever having uh, been there. I had been to Boston, I think when I was seven or eight or something like that on a family trip, only for three days and so on. So I, I didn't really know the city, but I knew that it was more European than most of the US and kind of a place that was a good place to land for Europeans. So a month before he had his flight over, my company in Germany got acquired by PGP. And that was my opening to figure out how to get there. The problem was that I wanted to be in Boston and they were in Palo Alto. And they said, well, we want you in Frankfurt or in Palo Alto. We don't want you in Boston. And I'm like, well, but I want to be in Boston. <laughs> That's like Frankfurt or Palo Alto are no good for me. So I interviewed, I thought, okay, like what kind of position? I, I was mostly in marketing at the time and product marketing made sense because I, I have some technical depth and so on. So that meant I could translate between yeah. engineering and product management and uh, marketing and the customer and so on. So I thought, okay, product marketing is in Palo Alto. So that's kind of tough, but maybe I can get a sales job because I'd done quite a bit of sales at the startup. You know, we were all wearing a lot of hats. And uh, I talked to the, to the head of sales and he's like, yeah, you're not a, you're not, you're not a salesperson. And I'm like, okay, th there goes that dream. And so I, I printed a, a resume and I, it was like unusual format. It was like a card format and kind of funky design because I used to be a graphic designer, right? So I wanted to do something a little bit more intriguing and I made it a format that fits into like a, a suit in our pocket at the trade show because at the time in Germany, everybody was wearing, wearing suits. I went to this trade show and I told my manager in Germany, I told him like, hey, I want to get to Boston. If PGP doesn't give me the opportunity, then I've got to figure out another way to get there. And CBIT at the time, I'm not sure if you remember that show. It was like a, a huge IT show in Germany. I think it's, it was actually the world's biggest, maybe next to Comdex or something. And I said, you know, all of my contacts are there next week. I'd be stupid not to take that opportunity if I don't have an offer on the table from, from PGP. So I went there and I went like to booth to booth to all of my contacts, you know, trying to, to get a job in the US. And then my phone rings and it's the CFO of PGP. And I don't know, I must have been like the, the coolest person in that moment because normally I'm a little, you know, not that forward. But uh, he said like, hey, Chris, I know that uh, you're at the show right now and so on. You're trying to figure out like where you fit in the company. We haven't quite figured that out yet, but I promise you, you're gonna, we're going to find a position for you. And uh, I told him like, hey, Alex, that's really nice of you. I really appreciate that. But, you know, this show is only this week. And I'm, until we actually have agreed on a position, I'm just going to keep on looking. PGP is still going to be my first choice. But this is a unique opportunity for me in terms of being in the right place at the right time. Right. So I hung up the phone, went around to more booths. Half an hour later, CEO calls me. Same story, same reply. <laughs> and then ultimately, we figured out something. They parked me under a manager that didn't make a ton of sense at the time. Uh, but I was able to work remotely from Boston. And then I had downtime in my work. And I thought like, if I don't deliver good work or visible work, they're going to cut me eventually. So I basically said, I, I asked my manager for, for more work and he didn't have any. So I went around and called like all the people that made, made sense in the company and said, I have spare cycles. Do you have any work for me? Right. And one of them uh, took me on and uh, then took me into her team. And she's also the one that later hired me to Encypher, right? So yeah. 
I just tried to be super proactive and, you know, like if I'd lost that job, I would have lost the ability to stay in the US, right? So the stakes were pretty high. Yeah, and I think that's a, a, a pretty big share, experience share that you just did because mm -hmm. I think that's something people can think about. Not, I'm, I would suggest not many people do what you did, but you you sought out the opportunities to use extra bandwidth that you had. And of course mm -hmm. it turned yeah. out great for you. It, mm -hmm. it, it, so that's something that people can do, but it might not be first nature for people to do it. If you're ambitious and you, you want, you have dreams and vision and you want to move forward at a company and beyond that company, that's not a bad strategy. Yeah, yeah. And it shows that you're willing to work and that, that you want to have an impact, right? And if you approach another manager with that message, like who is not going to take you on? If your skill set fits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if they have extra work for you. How many, just sort of make it tactical for everyone to sort of think about if they were going to do something like that, how many um, managers or areas of the company did you, re did you reach out to? I mean, the ones that made sense, uh, I don't remember exactly. Uh, so uh, Britta worked in product marketing, so that was a natural fit. I might have reached out to product management. I might have, might have reached out to, like, I've, I've done all sorts of things. I've done documentation. Did, people, kind of did they all know you? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. I, I'd been to the headquarters. I'd shaken some hands and so on. Yeah. Um, I also offered my, my boss in Germany, like, can I help you out, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah. It's just trying to, you know, cold call, <laughs> essentially. Well, I, I think this is yeah. every one of these sessions, every single one, there's been uh, what I've been coining gold nuggets. And I think that was a, one of them it, right there. That's something people could look in the mirror and say, I could do that. And if they're yeah. wanting to move up or, or become more valuable or make a change, yeah. but they're not unhappy with the company they work for, um, obviously larger company has more of this sort of opportunity than a, than a tiny one or a small one. But all things being equal, this concept of reaching out and cold calling even within the company you already work for is very interesting. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just wanna take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. And they led the charge this year for the podcast and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over a hundred episodes. They had their anniversary recently, focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. Yeah, and think about it right now. You know, We're going through very weird economic times and a lot of companies are, are laying people off or yeah. are cutting costs and so on. If you can send the signal to your company that you want to make an impact, you want to do the right thing for the company and so on, you like, you know, I've been through a total of six acquisitions, right? Uh, on the being acquired side, I've been on the acquiring side a few more times as well. And there's essentially two attitudes you can have to an acquisition. Either you say like, this is BS, I don't want to be acquired, like this is a threat to my job, all of that stuff. Or you can say, all right, you know, like this is the new reality, how can I help, right? And if you take the attitude of how can I help and where where am I needed, where can I add value, there's tons of stuff, right? It, product marketing has the advantage that after an acquisition, you often are retained because they're interested in the subject matter expertise and, and so on. And, you know, I helped, you know, rebrand the products, train the, uh, the, the sales teams, like all of that stuff, which helps with the transition. And if you're thinking about, 
your company right now and maybe your company is going through a transition, think about, okay, like what does a company need right now and where can you add value? I think if you do that, my gut feeling is it's going to get noticed and you're going to have a positive impact on your career and you're going to reduce the risk that you're part of a restructuring. Restructuring is never great and never fair because it also impacts people that do a great job. So there is no certainty, no uh, no uh, guarantee. Yeah. But you know, in the end, somebody's going to make a decision somewhere. And if they think that you have more impact than somebody else, that might go in your favor. Unless it's a structural thing where your entire department or your entire class of jobs or something is on the line. I think this, this fits completely in with this theme that I've seen with a number of these interviews of people that are now in, in very interesting positions doing really interesting things. And people maybe early in their career say, how do you end up there? And it's about attitude and making certain choices. And I, I, I remember somebody on a recent one talking about, you know, I just, on one of my lunch break, I went over and I met those guys in the plant and mm-hmm. learned what was going on in the plant. It's a similar thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Proactive, yeah. taking time that is potentially your own time and going ahead and making it happen, taking the action. And, and, and that people will be very receptive to, to a lot of those different things. Your example and others, they'll be receptive and say, oh, yeah, come on over here, you know, check it out. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. But it takes proaction on on the individual's part, and a person who has that sort of as part of who they are, it's not surprising, you know, that can lead to some great things. Yeah, and you know, sometimes you you don't know what's going to lead to something great. Yeah. Right? So I'll, I'll give you some examples. Sometimes I have people reaching out to me on LinkedIn and saying like, "Hey, heard you on this podcast or something like that." Actually, real example, right? Somebody heard me on a podcast. Uh, they said, "Hey, I'm." This was an OSINT pod- podcast. I'm like one of my interests is, is open source intelligence, right? So uh, he reached out and said, this is uh, this was really interesting, just wanted to connect, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he happened to live about 45 minutes from my parents. Next time I was over in Germany, I kind of like went through my LinkedIn. And I said like, hmm, you know, I, I have my circle of friends, but, the, but I was there for three weeks. So I'm like, hey, I could also see like who else I know in the area and, and meet up. So we met up for, for breakfast. This is not a work thing. This, we were just chatting about OSINT yeah. and, and techniques. Uh, he works in physical security for a big company, uh, used to work for a private investigator company. Uh, so like we had a really good and rich conversation. I wouldn't have had that if I just blocked him on LinkedIn, right? A- another example is somebody contacted me on on Twitter, like no, no real name, just like Ace of Spades or something like that as the, yeah. the name, right? and said like, hey, saw your video about social engineering. I'd love to compete in the social engineering competition. Can you, uh, would you be willing to have a call with me? And so I said like, sure, why not? You know, like, let's have a call. Uh, call me on my drive home. We'll have a conversation. It's, it's dead time for me anyway, because I'm, I'm driving. I can't do anything productive. So we had, a, we had a chat and so on. He was asking me about pretexting and how I figure out pretext. And I'm like, you know, just draw from what you know about in life, you know? What, what you know, and I, th- I thought this was like a, an, an entry-level pen tester, right? That I was talking to. And I was like, okay, so what do you do? Um, what do you do for work? Like, draw on what you, the kind of jobs you've done in the past. He, he said, he says, well, I'm 16 and I'm an actor in LA. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this was unexpected, <laughs> but that means you can deliver a line, so that's great for social engineering, etc. Yeah. Right? But um, He's actually on a uh, like he's a uh, an actor on on a show that you would probably know. But it was a really really interesting uh, connection, and I've had so many of these connections where you just if you're open to chatting some, to somebody, 
you meet interesting people, you have interesting conversations and so on. And uh, many of those folks I'm still friends with today and they've opened other doors for me that, that were interesting paths. Uh, I think that's another fantastic share, which is, yeah, you know, be, be open and, um, and, and have conversations. You know, I think those are sort of two different themes that are related, but have conversations without knowing where they're going to lead. Right. And yeah. Um, I, I, I subscribe to the same beliefs and, 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 and have the conversation. I mean, I suppose it's easy. I, I found my, my default position was I like talking to people and learning new things. If that's challenging for someone, you know, that's hard to repeatedly do. For me, it's not a challenge. And, and I don't go into it with an expectation that something's going to come from it. Man, interesting things do come from some of those conversations when you least expect it or later, time mm -hmm. delay, you know, two years later, 10 years later, like, it's it's so many stories I'm sure we both could share, but I love that. I think that's that's another really, really, uh, really good message. So other companies, Veracode and mm -hmm. uh, Bridge12 and Signals, and you start your own company. You're now uh, more than two years into it, co-founder. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a theme there, probably something else you touch on, co-founder with someone you had quite a professional exposure to previously. Yes. So you knew each yes. other, you knew what you could do together, or you had a, you had a hunch at least. Yeah, you're referring to to HD, who's the creator of Metasploit, and so yeah. we both left Rapid Seven after a while, and and he went off doing research and pen testing and those good things, and I went to Veracode, and we were actually both at the same pool on a DefCon Sunday uh, with a few other folks from the industry, and uh, he had the idea to say like, hey, you know, like one of the big problems that is like an unsolved problem in security is asset inventory. People don't know what, what they have on their network. When he was doing pen tests, the stuff that they knew about was pretty well locked down, right? Not always perfectly, but you know, pretty decent. But it was always the unknown unknowns that got them owned and that he was able to use to get in. And so he said, all right, so if we think about this problem for a moment, if you, if you look at how people are trying to solve that problem today, they're either trying to put an agent on every machine and that agent tells you that this machine exists, or they're trying to um, do an authenticated scan where you need to have a, a service account or something like that, or some domain admin credentials or whatever, to um, hopefully not domain admin, that would be bad, but um, like some, some kind of like maybe read-only service account that contacts every device or every IP on the network, tries to scan it, logs on, does some inventory and records it somewhere. The problem is, that with both of these, you can only inventory things that you already know about or that, that are on the domain, right? That you have credentials for. And we, we now know that about half of the devices on a network don't respond to that, right? Sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's 60%, but it's, it's, it's really a, a large amount. So he started out and said, all right, like with Metasploit, Metasploit does essentially four things, you know, like it enumerates things on the network, it fingerprints things, then you go to exploitation and post-exploitation. The first two steps of enumeration and fingerprinting are essentially what you need for asset inventory. But Metasploit is a little bit too aggressive a tool in terms of how it does things that it can knock things over, right? On, on, on IT networks and OT networks especially. So he created a, a new active scanner that is very kind to all sorts of networks, IT and OT, right? Because you are, even on IT networks, you have like some printers spew out pages when you scan them with, with like a Vaughn scanner. Some devices freeze up or reboot when you scan them with Nmap. And they like all of that stuff. And, and Metasploit also has Nmap under the covers, right? A lot of tools have Nmap under the covers. So 
he created a scanner that avoids all of these problems. So it doesn't send malformed IP packets to identify Linux systems. It doesn't send aggressive security probes like, like SQL injections. It, um, it throttles the traffic per IP and goes round robin. So you don't overload a device that needs to respond in re real time, for example, or can't process as many packets per second, right? We avoid all of these things. And then there's a, another way to fingerprint very, very flaky devices um, and fingerprint them early and then adapt the fingerprinting, right? So that um, I'll, I'll tell you, for example, the, the Lantronics uh, serial to ethernet converters. Like if you scan them with, with anything, they will throw their hands up in the air and freeze up. Because if they get a connection on a certain port, the next thing that they expect is a very, very specific command. And they will not proceed until they get that very specific command. But you can fingerprint these devices in a different way before you hit that port, right? So you you take those off the, like if you detect those, you know like, oh, this is a Lantronics. I shouldn't fingerprint this in the normal way. I'll fingerprint it in a different way. And so he started um, creating a product, uh, used to be called Rumble, it's now called Run Zero. And uh, basically he got all sorts of customers across tons of different industries started in IT, but then OT customers started adopting it and saying like, hey, this actually works pretty well on OT networks as well. Um, so that unauthenticated scan finds everything on the network and is geared towards figuring out what something is. So it goes beyond like an NMAP or a vulnerability scanner uh, fingerprint and, and really tells what the hardware is. And then we layered on top of that um, integrations with cloud and security uh, infrastructure like um, EDR and MDM and Active Directory and, and so on. Uh, and now we're also releasing a, a passive option because there's, you know, some OT environments, like we scan a, a lot of, I mean, you know OT environments better than than I do, but there's a lot of interesting and weird stuff out there, right? That and a lot of different industries, like OT, OT doesn't equal OT, right? So we, we scan anything from uh, with active scanning from car manufacturing and in manufacturing also like windows and blinds and apparel and like uh, and then things like sawmills and fish farms and cattle farms and hospitals and uh, utilities and so on all with active scanning. But there are some customers either the the safety concerns or the age of the infrastructure or the culture or the policies uh, that are not comfortable with that even if they've tested it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So for those folks, we're also now uh, coming out with a, a passive solution that uh, doesn't send any active traffic, just captures the traffic on the network. And we figured out a way how to do that in software with less hardware requirements so you can more easily deploy it uh, on existing, existing hardware. Uh, you can deploy it in a decentralized way rather than ferreting all of the traffic to a central location and so on. So uh, between all of these, we, we're able to provide you with asset inventory across IT, both managed and unmanaged, OT, cloud, and remote, and then give you a lot of insights on security, et cetera, et cetera, uh, based on that asset inventory. That's that's huge. I mean, that, and that caught my attention when you, when you and I first met some time yeah. ago. Um, which the, you weren't doing the, the sort of the passive part yet. Yeah, that's um, new. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's new. But it's it's huge. I mean, even today we had one of our big events. We had a couple hundred people, and um, asset inventory. You know, is discussing mm -hmm. a variety of things, but sort of like a foundational step. Like you know, the way I always paraphrase it, to, you know, generically is if you don't know where your stuff is and how it's communicating, yeah. all these other other strategies, you know, are are 
higher up the ladder, right? Get, you got to get, I mean, that's sort of primordial, right? You got to get that yeah. done, uh, done at the very, uh, at the very early stage. And, and, uh, and it's, I've been in, you know, crossed over into this part of the industry from traditional cyber, you know, 13 years ago, and there was lots of fear and it's not dead yet, but fear around mm -hmm. active interrogation and, and scanning and tools causing problems, legit yeah. cybersecurity tools causing problems in the operating technology space, all the stuff that you mentioned. Um, and uh, but the truth is, asset inventory is a big, big deal. A lot of people are still struggling with that and need to know, you know, what what is connected? What are all the things that are connected? So um, love that, that that's uh, you know um, yeah. more more. And it's, um, it's just yeah, and I, I mean th those fears are not unfounded, right? If yeah. you scanned with Nmap, Metasploit, I include Metasploit in this. By the way, the creator of Nmap is an investor. Like I think Nmap is a fantastic tool. I think Metasploit is a fantastic tool. I've worked for one of the volume management scanners. They're all smart people, right? This is all like, these things all have their place. But their approach to network scanning can destabilize, especially OT networks and then some IoT and, and, and uh, uh, fragile embedded devices on, on IT networks. Printers, for example, there is one vulnerability scanning solution that still fingerprints printers and then ignores them from the scan, doesn't do the, the remaining scan. So it, it just skips the printers. Um, but, it, you know, we just started from scratch and uh, not we, because I can't, you know, you don't want me coding this stuff. HD did. And uh, he, he built a scanner from scratch that does all of this. And then, you know, like that was the hard part. That was really the, the part that gives you the insight into the unknown unknowns. And then we did what a lot of the other vendors do, which was the API integrations and the passive and so on. And combining all three of those, I think, is really strong because you, you get a much better fidelity across different environments. You can't just take one because you'll miss different parts of the equation if you if you just have one or two. Well, I think you know we're um, nearing the end here, and I think an, an interesting segue is for you to talk maybe to other entrepreneurs out there or people that are, that are thinking about it when when entering the OT space, if you're already addressing mm -hmm. this, maybe yeah, yeah. you'll nuance it or maybe you'll share something different. What's important? You know, what what do the the other entrepreneurs and and, and, and maybe it also extends to people who aren't the owners or entrepreneurs, but they're selling cybersecurity products. Mm -hmm. They they alienate themselves in some circumstances in the OT environment when they go in and do or say certain things. I mean, do you have any advice yeah. as people yeah. are saying, we know this is a space we want to help, but it's not just don't jam in what you're doing or what you yeah. currently have and expect it to be successful over in this space. It may need permutation or adjustment or language, yeah. understanding some maybe some additional language and all those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm only what like two and a half years into the OT space. You know, I yeah. used to work in other areas as you as you know. And um, so I think number one, you want to listen, right? And that's true for as an entrepreneur, you probably want to listen more than you speak. Great message. Um, Number two, um, hire people that know that space. We've we've hired people that um, are you know former operators of OT environments that know that space really well, that work with our customers in in those industries and so on. That's really important. And then just study up on the on the space, you know, the different protocols and how you uh, how you deploy things and so on. Um, I, I read Pascal Ackerman's uh, second book on. I forgot what the title is. You you might have it in your in your head. Industrial cybersecurity. I think it's the title. Yeah, it's over there, right? Great book. Right? I read that between Christmas and New Year's, right? Because yeah. I was interested. You have to be you have to be genuinely interested. I think that's another 
another thing, right? Don't don't chase it because Gartner says they're big dollars, but actually be genuinely interested in the space and the problems and so on. And it is very different from your 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 standard IT network. I mean, there's lots of things that that are true for both. But one thing that I always find remarkable in OT networks is that it's both the most critical system that must never go down, and it's also the most fragile thing on the planet, and you're not allowed to touch it, right? Those two things are a paradox, and it's it's scary when you think about it. I'm, I'm, I know that all of your listeners know this, right? But that is the one thing about OT that is sometimes, I think that is one area that's that's difficult for some people from the outside to understand. Uh, and I think that is uh, also because OT is something that must run and must produce value, but there is not the same level of investment, I think, in new technology in OT uh, from, from a company perspective as we have on the IT side. I think IT's dollars are a little bit maybe easier to come by and probably people who sell into IT will probably say like, no, 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 it's really hard or whatever. But um, it seems to me that OT budgets are overall a little bit smaller when it comes to overall uh, technology refreshment. Yeah, they're, you know, they're historically a lot of CapEx, bigger expense mm, yeah, buildings. Yeah. And they're very expensive. They're extremely and expensive. Low, yeah. Lower yeah. OPEX, it is definitely lower. Mm. But, I, you know, I have friends who are very much still in the field, you know, auditing or, or, or yeah, doing assessments. Yeah. And there's Windows, not not only lots of XP, uh, mm-hmm. Windows XP out there, there's Windows 3X flavors, uh, you know, still there. And um, so, yeah, the window, yeah. the tech refresh rate is wildly different uh, decades. Yeah. Uh, you know, versus what, two, three, four years. I don't know what the, the yeah. current IT refresh rate is, but it's much, much shorter. And that's, yeah, that's not not the case in these environments. And that, that is one of those divergent path, uh, you know, path things for sure, well, you know, amongst many. Well, um, excited to hear uh, more uh, about Run Zero in the in the near future, and especially since you're, you guys are, are, are diving into into our, our side of the pond, so to speak, uh, or, or whatever the analogy is, uh, you know, that sounds uh, welcome. Um, and uh, let us know how we can help you, Chris. Any other final words of uh, words of uh, of wisdom you want to share with anybody out there? And maybe somebody earlier in their career path. Uh, what would you tell the younger Chris if you were sitting across from him? Uh... <laughs> the younger Chris. I, I think we, we talked about saying yes already, right? And not being too reserved. You know, like if you're if you're struggling with saying yes and kind of jumping into uh, situations, and if you're a little bit more on the timid side, take some improv classes. They're really frightening, as, as, as some of the most frightening things I've done in my in my life, maybe. And um, but they're really fun once you get into them, and you do it without an audience. It's just the people in the room, and they all feel as feel as frightened as you are. But you learn going into a situation without knowing how it's going to end, and you figure out that it is fine in each in each situation. Sometimes the scene is funny, sometimes you completely bomb, and that's okay, right? Life doesn't end. So if you if you think about that mindset in life and you say you know like yes let's let's have this conversation and so on, uh, you can always walk away later if it's not the right fit. But say yes more often. And also from my perspective, I'm a very risk averse person, which probably is is good from a security perspective, right? But um, some, sometimes to a fault. So I've I've stuck in jobs longer and and I've been more conservative on investments and so on, and. Uh, you know, arguably, I ended up in a good place, right? But I, I always thought that I should take just a little bit more risk, not wildly more risk, not like being reckless, uh, but more calculated risk. Awesome. Great, great advice. Well, uh, Chris, we come to my one of my favorite parts of doing this. I have borrowed 
the uh, what's called the Bivo questionnaire from uh, a television show that's it may still be running. I, I really should find out, but it ran for many, many years. I think a couple decades with James Lipton interviewing famous actors and actresses across the ages on his stage in front of the acting school in New York where he was the dean. And he ended the show with this questionnaire from a French show. So I think it's this decades old for sure, maybe 50 years old, I don't know. Um, and I have not modified the questionnaire. And so if you're up for it, I'll ask you the Pavo questionnaire as our final uh, okay. Okay. I, I peeked at it. I. I am. Uh, yeah. I'm. I'm. A, I'm a little bit stumped by it. We'll see how I do. Okay. Whatever <laughs> comes up first, you know, that's okay. 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 What is your favorite word? Yes. <laughs> we established that, right? <laughs> what is your What is your least favorite word? No. Makes sense. Goes with the opposite of yes. Uh, what turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? A fun challenge. So trying to dive into something new and, and learning about it. Yeah. What turns you off? People who are overly negative. And what is your favorite curse word? Um, I'll go with Gottfried Stutz normal. I got to admit, I Swiss love German. it. German. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I love it. Yeah. Uh, what sound or noise do you love? Oh, um, sound or a noise. Let's think about this. I like, see, I'm not very good at improv. <laughs> because I can't come up with anything. I will say the, the bing of the microwave when my lunch is ready. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? The guy pulling into the parking space that I was about to take. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I would love to be a, a, a an intern for a fortune teller. What profession would you like to not do? God, I, I would hate to do any profession that is highly repetitive because I find that very boring. I, I love it when every day is different and a different challenge. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, I think I would prefer to go to hell because that's where all, my, all of my friends are. <laughs> I'm just wrapping up with Chris Kirst, co-founder and chief executive officer at Run Zero, who gave me, again, I, 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 there's always a new answer to these same 10 questions. That, you know, I'm approaching 100 times doing it, and I always laugh at something somebody shares. I thank you for everything and thank you for your long standing commitment and contributions in, uh, in, in the cybersecurity industry. And, uh, and then uh, thanks for taking a look at, at uh, steering some of that energy and, and activity to OT um, and for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Good night, Chris.